0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation.
1: From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bala. And if you're new to the podcast, each week, my colleagues Joanne Freeman, Ed Ayers, Nathan Connolly, and I explore an aspect of American history that's been in the news. This week, we're digging into an age-old question. What makes a man? Earlier this year, just in time for the Super Bowl, Razor Maker Gillette released its latest ad campaign, which quickly got people talking, called The Best Men Can Be. The ad starts by featuring clips of men behaving badly. Some are harassing women, others are fighting, and it's all summed up with a simple phrase: "Boys will be
2: boys." But then
1: the booming voice in the ad says, "Something changed." But something finally changed.
3: Allegations regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment.
4: And there will be no going back. Because we,
1: we believe in the best in men. Some critics denounced the ads as the latest in what many people call woke washing, a tactic used by brands to cash in on social movements. Others claimed it was too hard on men, that it shamed them rather than helped them. No matter what you might think about the ad, one thing's for sure. The question Gillette posed about what it means to be a man is one that has preoccupied Americans for generations. So this week on Backstory, we go back into the archives to look at past segments that explore changing perceptions of manhood in America. We'll look at why so many men started growing beards in 19th century America. And we'll explore how ideas about the perfect male body used to be very different from what you might think today. But first, I want you to imagine a suburban summer weekend in the 1950s. Let's head in a manicured lawn in the backyard, casually dressed neighbors, and of course, an apron-clad dad standing next to the grill.
5: Glowing coals, giant asbestos gloves, oversized
1: tongs. This is Lauren Moulds, a librarian at the University of Virginia Law School. Smoke...
5: Wafting over the neighbor's fence and his adoring family waiting for the grill to get just right for that giant hunk of meat that's going to go on there and sizzle and
1: spit and taste like Saturday in America. It's an idyllic image, and Mold says it's completely choreographed. Grilling was an antidote to problems that psychiatrists and family experts saw in the American middle class two decades before in the mid 1930s. These experts thought fathers were too absent from the home and worried about the development of American children. So Mould says in journals and magazines across the country, there was a call for men to
5: have a stronger presence in family life to balance out. The effects of overmothering, to be a great role model for their children, in order to ensure that their daughters know who to look for in a man and their sons know what a good man
1: is. But if experts wanted dad to be around as a manly role model, he couldn't just rush to a dustpan and broom. Household chores were women's work. Dad needed a space for distinctly masculine projects. Molt says the popular magazines of the 1930s were awash with activities for Dad that wouldn't turn him into mom. In a 1935 article for American Magazine, former heavyweight boxing champion Jack Dempsey suggested the manly art of cooking. And the key to its manliness well, that was meat. <laughs>
5: Well, he's saying basically that men have an innate ability to spice up meals, right? Because men are really good at specialization. Men are really good at fun techniques and spectacle. And so he associates men's cooking with various masculine activities like Boy Scouts, camping, hunting trips. He says, when a man sends himself to cooking, he can outdo a woman any day. And men spar with every kind of cooking stove imaginable and put unexpected uppercuts in ordinary dishes and make them really knockout (laughs) fare.
1: Quite the wordsmith, along with being a chef. Lauren, was meat always what's for dinner? I mean, what is it about
5: meat? Well, I think meat's the perfect thing, right? Meat is carnal. There's something primal about meat, about cooking meat harkens back to the cavemen it harkens back to cooking over fires with a group of dudes you know it's really something that only men can do there's a there's a bit of danger to it there's a bit of expertise so that's why the barbecue just resonates I think I argue with these with these fathers because it's not something that's everyday it's something that requires man I love you man I love you too man
1: Sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> Mould says that the grill, is a distinctly masculine domain, really caught fire in the 1950s after the scarcity of the Great Depression and meat rationing in World War II.
5: I think it comes out of this distinctive post-war moment based on prosperity and property. Mm-hmm. Where I think the suburbs are... Uh, a perfect place for something like this to happen because you have unprecedented amounts of families moving out into the suburbs, and they have all of this space in the backyard, and they need to fill that void with rituals.
1: Magazines like Esquire and a growing industry of cookbooks for men showcase those rituals. Mold says there was another reason to fire up steaks in the 1950s, the Cold War. Americans were expected to stand up to those lean, mean communists with voracious capitalist appetites. Grilling became part of American exceptionalism.
5: Buying the meat that is part of that grilling experience Mm -hmm. proves that the American way of life and consuming meat is such a distinctive and important way of living. It goes to show that we live in a country of marvels where Every place in the suburb can have a giant steak or hot dogs or hamburgers every night of the week. And we can do it in a very gratuitous way. I don't know how to explain it, but I think it's a wonderful celebration of Americanness amid a very uncertain geopolitical circumstances.
1: That's Lauren Moult, head of Digital Scholarship and Preservation at the University of Virginia Law School. Before backyard barbecues, there were some big changes taking place in 19th century America. More and more people were moving into cities, and desk jobs were becoming common. These changes transformed many aspects of American life, including what it meant to be a man, and whether or not men needed to pick up their razors. So now, I'm going to take you back to the late 1830s and a very public debate about beards. By this point, members of the more refined urban professional classes had been wearing facial hair for a few years. They called that look whiskers, which usually meant a carefully trimmed beard, lengthy sideburns, or even a waxed mustache. Beards were different. They were wild, unkempt, and often went down to a man's chest. And they quickly became a source of controversy as Americans argued for and against the beard. Those who opposed them claimed beards were indecent, while beard proponents said they were virtuous or even that they had healthful benefits. But beards served yet another, more important purpose, as Ed
2: learned when he spoke to historian Sean Train. There's a sense that wearing a beard is, is um, not merely reflective of a, a sort of strength and virility, but is perhaps even productive of it. That by growing a beard, that you will be stronger, you will be more robust, more virile, that you can go out and do these manly things that perhaps they've always wanted to do but couldn't do because they didn't have facial hair.
0: Considering all this, you might expect the beard to be found on the American frontier. But Trainer says that it was just the opposite. This is a period when Americans were flocking to cities for jobs behind desks as clerks or salesmen. And it was these guys who wore and argued for the biggest beards. Many of these folks
2: are actually coming from the same sort of professional urban circles as the the clerks, you know, sort of who are wearing whiskers. But it is uh, an idea that they're aspiring to and that they think the beard is suggestive of. But the thing that's actually really interesting is that you do find a handful of, of critics, especially uh, among Western men, and really, really kind of object to this idea of the beard as a, a style of the frontier, or a style of sort of rugged
0: masculinity. It's very interesting. You certainly don't think of cowboys as having beards, do you?
2: Right, you don't. In fact, an uh, interesting example is um, there's a famous mural in uh, the Capitol Rotunda entitled Westward, the Course of Empire Takes Its Way. features some rather uh, rugged-looking Western men with facial hair. Uh, but at least one commentator um, objected to this, this particular way of depicting Western men and said that, you know, while, while Western men, to sort of use a, a modern term, might get scruffy every once in a while, you know, they outdoing their, uh, their sort of frontiersy business, <laughs> right? that whenever they got a chance... They found some warm water, they found some soap and they found a razor and they shaved themselves so I mean there is this sense at least coming from a, a few sources that the, the idea of uh, beard wearing as kind
0: of a western affectation that that's just that's just incorrect so what is it that American men in the 1840s would be reacting against why are they so eager to prove themselves manly
2: well the the beard i think is is the beard and facial hair more more broadly the, the response to um to a number of factors and You know, the first, perhaps, is the burgeoning of uh, women's activism, women's rights movement, and the fear among some men that their prerogative is being challenged and that the beard becomes a way to sort of reinforce a distinction between men and women that they feel
0: is being lost. Even the ladies who in years past so lovingly admired these noble badges of men's dignity now demand their curtailment, if not utter extermination. They wish to make a clean shave... Of all badges of manly superiority, they seem determined to have an equality between the sexes anyhow. If they can't elevate themselves up, they are determined to elevate the men down.
2: Uh, But also, this is, you know, this is the great period of of Manifest Destiny. Um, You know, you see these folks talking about the bearded races or the conquering races. In the world's history... The bearded races have at all times been the most important actors, and there is no
1: part of the body which, on the whole, they have shown more readiness to honor.
2: It cannot be denied that a certain superiority has always been conveyed by the presence of the beard. If you want to uh, make your, your presence felt throughout the world as uh, a person of sort of imperial power, uh, that the beard is is an emblem for that.
0: Now. I know that in the 1850s, there was a kind of palpable excitement in the air about the impending war. And do you think it's possible that some American men sort of donned beards as a way to show themselves as men worthy of this moment? Yeah, I, I think that as the sectional crisis
2: uh, deepens, as the likelihood of some sort of conflict, whether it's violent or whether it's political, deepens, that I, I think that the the beard is part of a way that, that men kind of prepare themselves mentally or, or, or socially or culturally, that this is the way that men thought that they should or needed to look when facing a crisis or when facing
0: something that they thought would test their masculinity. So as you pointed out, men imagine wearing a beard the years before the Civil War as a, a kind of preparation for the crisis. But as you know, they still wear beards for decades after the Civil War. Does the beard then have a different meaning? Well, I think that
2: wearing the beard was was part of sort of marking one's status as a veteran. And and I mean veteran kind of expansively here, not just as a veteran of the Union or Confederate Army, but as a veteran of the experience of, of the war. And I, I do think that it continues to carry that meaning throughout the, the end of the century. And that perhaps one of the reasons why— the style sort of falls into disrepair, as it were, is that, you know, people are, are beginning to, to try to put the war behind them. And I think that, you know, the beard is, is part of that, or rather getting rid of the beard. I mean, moving beyond uh, a style of men's grooming in which uh, beard wearing and facial hair is kind of the, the dominant mode of comportment.
1: That was Ed Ayers in conversation with Sean Trainer. Sean's book is The Bearded Age, The Rise and Fall of Victorian America's Most Infamous Fashion. We're going to finish today by turning to the ever-contentious topic of body image. Something you may or may not be thinking about as you pull out your favorite swimsuit and hit the beach or your local public pool. Today, it's common to see images of the so-called perfect American man as a burly, muscular guy. But back in the 19th century, men got a very different message. In fact, it's one women often hear today. And it had a lot to do with changing notions of citizenship. It all started with a little pamphlet called A Letter on Corpulence, written in 1863 by a British undertaker named William Banting. Banting was overweight, and it had become a problem for him. He had trouble climbing the stairs, and he couldn't tie his shoes. Former Backstory co-host Peter Onuf spoke to Katerina Vester, a historian at American University, about Banting's letter on corpulence, which documented his attempts at losing weight. The pamphlet promised readers that if they followed Banting's program, they too could shed the pounds. The pamphlet was a runaway hit on both sides of the Atlantic, and it proposed a very particular regimen for American men to follow, as Peter quickly learned.
3: It is quite meat-heavy. And it also suggests that people who want to lose weight should row a lot or smoke a lot or drink a lot of alcohol. So it's not exactly no, no, how. Slow we, down,
4: slow down. This is a diet <laughs> that recommends smoking and drinking.
3: Right. <laughs> <laughs> it suggests alcohol for every meal.
4: So uh, obviously, this is pitched toward men.
3: Exactly. And we can see that diet advice is also placed mostly in publications for men, like do-it-yourself magazines, such as Manufacturer and Builder, between advertisements for scroll saws or um, articles on floor matting, they now start to have (laughs) diet recommendations, too, for their readers.
4: Now, why would American men get all excited about what a British undertaker has to tell them about being fat? (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, it fits into earlier American thought in many ways. Yeah, So we have already writings by Emerson, who suggests that um, masculinity is closely connected to self-control, which also fits into Puritan ideas of bodily control. So this is all basically there already. And then when it hits the United States in the 1860s, We have a a rising middle class that uh, strives to participate in political power. Mm -hmm. And basically, they get the tool because they are kept out of uh, many ways to decide the nation's fate by being told that they are vulgar, non-educated, not sophisticated enough. And dieting is one way in which they can demonstrate that they can control their urges and that they are ready to rule.
4: So, they're demonstrating that they have the kind of self-control that elites traditionally exercise. Is that the
3: point? Exactly. And it's interesting that in the middle of the 19th century, and it's earlier in Europe, that overweight is now associated with greed and corruption. Mm. And we see that there's an increased fear that American society, and especially American men ruling American society, become too weak, too soft, too feminine. And this has a number of different uh, causes. So one of the most prominent ones is that men start to work sedentary jobs, desk jobs, where they no longer work out and don't do the traditional professions that men engaged in before, like trades. So there is the fear that this is not only infecting American masculinity, but American society in general, that American society will lose power because its men is no, are no longer as masculine as they used to be.
4: I want to stop the tape here for a second because, uh, as you may have noticed, the story so far is a little one-sided. What, you may be wondering, did dieting advice for women look like around this time? Well, basically the advice was this. Don't do it. Listen to how Harper's Bazaar described the effects of weight loss by women in 1896.
3: The body and the face lose their roundness. The eyes become sunken. The cheeks fall in. The lips are drawn. The skin acquires the hue and hardness of parchment. While at the same time, lines and wrinkles multiply, the chest becomes hollow and the waist angular. It's interesting to see that. Men start dieting and women start to become plumper and plumper. There are actually beauty manuals that are called things like How to Be Plump.
4: <laughs> okay. <laughs> and why is That's, that so uh, desirable or attractive? Why why does plumpness have a vogue in this period?
3: so it's the maternal body is considered being very attractive The soft body, the body that presents the most difference uh, to the male body, seems to be sexually more desirable. So we have, at the end of the century, we have sex goddesses like Lillian Russell who uh, weighed presumably something like 200 pounds. So it's really uh, the very plum woman is the ideal of the time.
4: So you can see in this context that women are supposed to look uh, fertile. They suggest sexuality, motherhood, maternal body, and so forth. In this context, it's not surprising that some women might take exception.
3: Exactly. So the first diet advice for women that we can find is actually written by uh, women's rights activists and by female doctors. So we have writers like Anna Kingsford, who is a doctor in Great Britain and a women's rights activist who in 1886, writes the first diet for women. These early rights activists associated the slender, healthy female body with equality, strength, and liberty. So they argued that if women were able to show that they could control their bodies in the same way that white middle-class men were able to control their bodies, that they could demonstrate that they're rational beings fit to uh, determine the fate of the nation. So there is the idea that this would help their cause to claim suffrage. So often we hear that women have diet as a form of oppression, as a way to divert them from right. their political interests. But my research showed that actually women started dieting as a means of liberation to embody a new type of woman who can participate in American policies.
4: In the context of women's rights, this is empowering to uh, mimic or follow the example of men and gain control over your body. Uh, What is its implication for uh, race and class?
3: Yeah, that's more problematic because white middle-class women who made the claim that they would be able to also control their bodies uh, often made at the same time the claim that immigrant women, women of color, working-class women are not able to control their bodies. So basically, it's not that they now ask for an inclusion of everybody uh, into uh, civic power, but actually they they suggest that they should be included, but others should be excluded. So we can see, for instance, in cooking manuals or household manuals of the time written by best-selling authors like Marian Harland, that she suggests that her white middle class readers should exercise regularly. But at the same time, she says that uh, Bridget's and Gretchen's, which are the code words for Irish and German maids and cooks, Uh that they are too lazy to exercise and that they are overweight because of that. And there's implicitly the argument that because they are not able to control their bodies, they are also not able to be American citizens yet.
1: That was former Backstory host Peter Oneth with Katerina Vester, an assistant professor of history at American University. That'll do it for us today. Thanks for joining me to take a look back at the Backstory Archive. There are hundreds of other shows available at our website, backstoryradio.org. You can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of an episode or ask us your question about history. Send us an email at backstory@virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at BackstoryRadio. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia
2: Humanities.